This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, freshly back from Caracas, we return to our Washington, D.C. studios where we'll conclude our series of programs examining the current state of politics in Venezuela. We'll have two diverging views, but first, Megan Eckhamel joins us. She has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Former Chilean President Michelle Bachelet called for a comprehensive investigation into all human rights abuses committed during the dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet. Bachelet made the call a day before the 40th anniversary of the day Pinochet grabbed power through a military coup. Bachelet's call came on the same day she revisited the site of the prison where she was tortured during the dictatorship. Conservative President Sebastian Pineda also echoed Bachelet's sentiments in a speech this week. Truth and justice are needed for peace and reconciliation. That's why we should continue to pursue real truth and justice. Those who have relevant information have a moral obligation to reveal it. Bachelet is once again running for the presidency of Chile, representing a coalition of left-wing parties. She was one of 40,000 victims during the dictatorship, which also killed more than 3,000 people. Various groups in Washington, D.C. also commemorated the tragedy of September the 11th in Chile, including a panel discussion on how that coup continues to resonate today. Alex Wilde, a senior fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, served on one such panel at American University. To me, these symbolic actions, some people say, well, they're just symbolic actions. They don't mean much. I think they do mean much. I, I, I mean a great deal. I think they mean that the leader of the country believes that moral questions are at stake and that in this case she should be on the right side of those uh, ethical issues. Various members of the D.C. community marked the solemn day that has been scarred with a variety of historic tragedies. We'll have a commentary about Chile's coup later in this program. Protesters poured into the streets and violently clashed with police in Brazil this past weekend. Anti-corruption groups targeted Brazilian independence celebrations in the most violent street protests since June. In Maceió, hundreds of protesters halted a military parade, and in Brasilia, Brazil's capital, the police used pepper spray on the protesters. Many protesters remain upset with the public spending on preparations for the World Cup, while Brazil's schools and hospitals remain substandard. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. This week, the Venezuelan government walked away from the Inter-American Court on Human Rights just a day after opposition leader Enrique Capriles Radonsky requested the court review allegations of fraud and coercion attached to the last spring's presidential election. We asked Professor Hugo Perez Arnaiz for his views on the government of President Nicolás Maduro. Perez Arnaiz teaches at both Universidad Católica and Universidad Central de Venezuela. He is a contributor to the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA's, blog on Venezuela. We reached him via Skype from Bilbao, Spain. I was telling you about the, uh, the blackout as well, uh, right when it happened. This was in Tuesday, uh, uh, Tuesday the 4th, I, I believe. Uh, 
right during the blackout, uh, Maduro was tweeting that, writing on, on Twitter that uh, he believed this was also an act of sabotage. And he also directly blamed the opposition, uh, uh, you know, as puppets of the empire and, and so forth. Uh, this week, the uh, electric uh, the energy minister, his name is Jesse Chacon, came out with the first uh, results of the first investigations on the issue and said that, yes, in fact, he believed that there was sabotage and that one of the towers of the main line, transmission line of the electric, uh, Venezuelan electric system had been um, sabotaged. Some net that was covering trash that was nearby became loose on purpose and uh, hit the tower and this is what caused the blackout. What are your opinions about these, these accusations? Events in Venezuela have been going on for a long time. Chavez was a big addict as well of, of conspiracy theorizing. But um, my opinion is that um, it's, it's not working that well for Maduro. Uh, I think there's already a, a, a proof of this in the April elections. If you look at Maduro's campaign leading up to April 14, it's also full of conspiracy theories, uh, accusations of sabotage uh, against the opposition. Uh, I, I guess this obviously didn't work. Um, but he's continued, and, and the conspiracy rhetoric has been on the increase since the April 14 election. I think Maruda is very sincere about this. He actually believes that, uh, that there are sabotages and wreckers around uh, um, wrecking the economy, wrecking the electrical system, and wrecking the oil industry. And, and he just continues with this rhetoric. This is something that I, I think when, when you get into this type of rhetoric, it's very hard to get out of. And, uh, and, and, and you, you need a lot of charisma to make people believe in these kind of things. And I think Chavez had it, but I don't think Maduro is, 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 is so good at it. Um, the problem with this is, I mean, there are no hard numbers of, of, in public opinion polls of people, you know, how many people actually believe in these things. How many people believe that, that Amai was sabotage? Or how many people believe, for example, that, that um, Chavez died of an inoculated cancer, uh, or things like this. So it's hard to tell if, if this is having the impact that, that the government would probably wish. Um, the only numbers I've seen was, I think it was a month ago, uh, Ivad came out, came out with a poll in July, and it stated that around 70% of the respondents um, blamed the government for the electrical crisis. And only 3.2% of the respondents blame saboteurs. So that gives you an idea that this is not really, I don't think it's a very good idea right now for Maduro to be uh, 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 using these kinds of rhetoric. In, in our travels last week in Venezuela, uh, yeah. granted we were not traveling with anyone outside of what I would call the middle class, but there was a great sense of frustration there in, in what I heard from people about um, long lines in grocery stores, problems with uh, power blackouts and electricity, and, and just a, a, a sense that the country was not being managed well. Uh, you travel back and forth between Spain and Venezuela, so you're not yeah. there daily, but what is yeah. your sense of, of how people 
um, feel about the government? Yeah, there's a lot of frustration, of course, and and, uh, and, and as you mentioned, this is also a class issue. Uh, um, the middle classes are very, very frustrated with, uh, with the economic situation. Um, again, uh, Maduro is attributing this to uh, an economic war that is being waged against Venezuela by, by, by the U.S., basically. Um, just, I don't know if you read, but just two days ago, uh, he again said that, uh, the, that Washington was uh, basically planning the total collapse of the Venezuelan economy by October. So, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, yes, people are very frustrated. I mean, <laughs> to switch topics a bit, this past mm-hmm. week that you had a co-authored piece in the Washington office on Latin America, WOLA's yeah. blog, uh, about the president, the presence of the military in Venezuelan life and, and, and the presence of these new militias that the Maduro government is sponsoring um, and, yeah. and promoting. Can you tell us a little bit about the thrust of, of your concerns well, the, there? The, the, piece, the piece was not actually about the militias. It was, it's more about uh, the ideas, more about the uh, military and the use of the military and citizen security, which is a, a big concern right now. Um, there's always been a debate in Venezuela, even before Chavez, about, about you know, the, 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 the right the mm, policing issues. If, if, if the right approach is a, a military sort of monoduda approach to crime, or the right approach is, uh, is you know, a civil, trained, professional police. And this has been a debate in Venezuela for a long time, and all over Latin America, most recently in Central America, right? And uh, in Venezuela, uh, during the Chavez years, there was a lot of progress in the institution of a, of a civilian police project that was linked to the UNES, to the University of Security that Chavez founded, and to the new Bolivarian police, which was supposed to be a professional police, uh, a well-trained police, uh, uh, respectful of human rights and so forth. Um, Maduro uh, seems to have I don't know if that's the right word. It seems to have backtracked from that a bit, and he uh, in in uh, in April, right after one of the elections, he he announced that he was uh, instituting a new security plan called Plan Patria Segura, and the big issue about this plan is that he's going to, he was going to put the military again on the streets uh, by military in the National Guard which is a, a, a militarized uh, force in Venezuela, and the army to deal with, uh, you know, basic citizen security. This was protested by most human rights organizations and, 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 and international, you know, made headlines around the world. And most uh, people, most experts, warned that this would probably cause abuses of human rights and it would be a problem. What we try to do in that piece is actually document some of these abuses that have actually happened since, since April. There have been some notable cases that have been um, uh, uh, well, particularly gruesome and uh, and you know uh, the, the thrust of the piece is to claim that actually yes, those warnings were warranted and, and putting military on the street 
doesn't seem a good idea. Has there been any reduction in the crime rate because of that? It's hard to tell. The government claims that it has. But as you know, uh, especially security figures in Venezuela, uh, crime-related figures are suspect, uh, to say the least. And uh, so there's not really, you know, not a way of telling if, if there's been a crime reduction. What else? What else do you think is important for our audience to know? Today, it's ending the process that started about a year ago of uh, denouncing the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. And uh, uh, today, uh, uh, September 10, um, will be the date where, where that denunciation comes into effect. And from today on, Venezuela is uh, effectively um, exiting the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. So that's something to look at in the next month, the reactions to this, the international reaction to this, and you know, how this is going to play. Thank you so much, Professor Hugo Perez-Arnaiz of the Universidad Católica and Universidad Central de Venezuela, also a columnist for the Washington Office on Latin America's Venezuela blog, joining us today from Bilbao, Spain, via Skype. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, thank you so much. Thank you. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Professor George Chicarello Mar is the author of We Created Chavez, A People's History of the Venezuelan Revolution. He joined us by Skype from his offices at Drexel University in Philadelphia to discuss the challenges ahead for Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro. So the Nicolas Maduro government uh, came into power and, and, and specifically with the, the re-election um, or his election in, in April um, uh, under a sort of a cloud of doubt. Uh, he had been interim president since the death of Chavez and was elected as Chavez's hand-picked electoral successor in, in April. And yet the opposition uh, to that had been the opposition to Chavez, the anti-Chavista opposition, uh, very quickly sought to maneuver in a way that allowed uh, their opposition to Maduro to take the form of really just questioning the election and refusing to recognize what was a surprisingly tight election. Um, this was back in April, and this was a period in which uh, the economy was suffering a little bit. The question of legitimacy, uh, however uh, un, uh, you know illegitimate, it, however illegitimately posed this question was, um, really did cast sort of a shadow over the early months of the Maduro government. Uh, but now, as we look at the the current state of affairs in now in August and uh, September of 2013, we see a government that's really back on the offensive that has sort of stabilized, and part of that has to do with the eventual discrediting of. Uh, the opposition claims with regard to the election and the stabilization, um, not coincidentally, the stabilization of the economy. You mentioned that they're back on the offensive. What what are the issues that that are part of that offensive? Um, well, for a couple of months, the Maduro government was really playing uh, playing defense, uh, and what that meant was 
uh, striking a conciliatory tone with elements of the opposition and, and even with uh, very, very large capitalist interests, uh, including the largest corporation in Venezuela. The reason that was done was partly because, um, as I mentioned, the political and the economic instability were tied to each other uh, because capitalist corporations in Venezuela have um, uh, the capacity to completely uh, impact the availability of goods, for example, and thereby the inflation rate. Uh, and so Maduro had made some some moves toward conciliatory uh, uh, meetings with uh, large corporations in an effort to stabilize the food supply uh, and, and was very sharply critiqued for doing so by his base. But now that the economy has stabilized and now that the political question has been more resolved, um, we've seen sort of a, a more radical turn. Uh, Maduro recently stated that uh, the central uh, objective of his government is to reinforce and to develop what has been called the communal state in Venezuela, sort of the unrealized uh, dream and aspiration of Hugo Chavez to build a communal self-governing state um, that stands aside, stands beside and, and eventually uh, uh, displaces entirely the existing sort of bureaucratic petro-state structure. I want to get back to the question of his relationship with his base, but you mentioned the the largest corporation in Venezuela. Would that be Polar or would it, it be is. another corporation? And, and what characterizes then the relationship between Polar and the government? Um, well, for a moment, it looked as though there was going to be a, a much more friendly relationship, a collaborative uh, relationship. Um, but, you know, and again, this was certainly what uh, Nicolas Maduro's social movement based, the sort of radical grassroots of the Chavista movement, uh, you know, they, they, they protested this when it, when it happened. Um, but I think from a more strategic perspective, the argument could be made that it was really, it, it, it was a way of doing what Chavez himself always did very, very successfully, which was to, uh, to, to neutralize uh, some opponents while training his sights on others, to, you know, to, um, you know, to put aside some, some, uh, some, opposition elements, whether it be in the media or in the private sector, so that he could really dispense more quickly with really with the central uh, opposition that he was facing at the time. And the, the argument could be made that this is what Maduro was doing. And the hope would be that this move, this shift back toward an emphasis on the communal state um, is indicates that Maduro, the Maduro government is going to at least attempt to be a more radical or an equally radical one. Let's talk then about the base and how radical the base is. Many people criticized President Maduro after the election, saying that he, he wasn't demonstrating signs, and you've, you've mentioned them, of why, um, that he could control socialism the same way that his predecessor, Hugo Chavez, could. That the various elements of, of socialism in Venezuela might be beyond him, and that there might be other political actors, like the head of the National Assembly, who, who might be opposing him behind closed doors. Uh, what do you think about those criticisms, and, and do you have insights along those lines? Sure. Uh, I think uh, I like to insist, and it's important to insist, that this Bolivarian revolution going on in Venezuela was never really about Chavez as an individual. But at the same time, we need to recognize, and it's, it's kind of difficult to express this to people who have not experienced it in Venezuela, just the, the, the brute power that was the personality of Hugo Chavez. And this was something that Maduro uh, did not have and no one expected him to have. And it's not simply a question of personality. It's also a question of historical legitimacy of Chavez being really this figure who was drawing together and unifying the movement. As, as you might expect then when Chavez, uh, when Chavez died and Maduro came to power, uh, there was this uh, you know, tendency within the Chavista movement for grievances to be aired in some ways more forcefully. 
um, for worries to be expressed about the direction of the process and for, of course, behind the scenes maneuvering to be taking place uh, in terms of who, uh, you know, who will actually be the successor in the long run. And this especially was um, aggravated. And a lot of these tendencies, natural tendencies, were uh, exacerbated precisely by the fact that Maduro very nearly lost the election in April. And this was an astounding uh, result because Chavez had won by nearly 12 percent last October against the very same candidate. So you had at that moment this tendency for people to to be more critical, to openly wonder whether or not Maduro was was going to be, you know, to have have what it took to be Chavez's successor, and others to to maneuver into that position. I think the you know the the internal tension between Maduro and Diosdado Cabello, the head of the National Assembly, uh, is in some ways overstated because uh, you know because Diosdado Cabello will not and is not going to be willing to make open moves against someone that Chavez uh, was very clear um, he wanted as his, his successor. But behind the, between the lines, it's perfectly clear, and everyone knows this, that Cabello represents a more moderate and conservative element of the Bolivarian process. And so a lot of the grassroots simply do not trust him and are, you know, would be worried about his role in a future government. Could we say the same thing restrains the military as a political force in Venezuela? Chavez being from the military, always seemed to to understand most of that institution. Uh, we could not say the same thing about Maduro. So um, obviously the military holds uh, a lot of power in Venezuela, does it not? It, it's got certain amounts of power. The military is not, we should be clear, it's not the kind of military that maybe we picture uh, in Latin America, in sort of Chile and Argentina, in these, these ferocious dictatorships where the military was really the governing force of society. The military in Venezuela has always been in some ways more progressive slightly, um, and also certainly less willing to, enact, to, to participate directly in politics than a lot of those uh, countries. Now, what Chavez was able to do by virtue of his personality was to, uh, to, to take positions and to push politics that the military would normally bridle at and resist. Um, and yet he, he had a way of communicating this and, and, and uh, pushing and pressing the radicalization of even the military itself, which is a major part of this process. I would say that uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, it's clear that Maduro is no Chavez and a large, uh, a major source of Chavez's uh, vast authority, if you want to put it that way, was actually non-institutional. It was the fact that Chavez could use a bully pulpit because of the person that he was, because of the authority, the, the sort of extra institutional uh, authority that he had among in the ability to call millions and millions of people to the street um, who, to then serve as a legitimate, legitimate base for uh, the demand for some kind of social transformation. We should bear in mind that, again, Nicolas Maduro hardly won this election in April. And that according to the Bolivarian constitution in Venezuela, actually, uh, the opposition can attempt to recall him in three years. And I think the expectation is that that, that will probably be something that the opposition attempts to do um, after three years pass. Um, even if it does not come forth in that way, uh, there's a serious question as to whether or not Nicolas Maduro uh, will be the candidate running six years from now to continue this, this Chavista process, or whether there will be an internal struggle to develop uh, you know, a different alternative candidacy. And you already see some of these internal tensions with the question of the regional elections coming up in December, where there were actually, there were there was a hope for primaries to determine the candidacies. And in the end, there were no primaries. A lot of candidates were named. Uh, some of these have been embraced by the grassroots and some have been roundly rejected and alternative candidates put forward. What would your prediction be about those tensions going forward? 
Uh, it's very difficult to say how they will play out, but part of the the emphasis that I like to place on the on the revolutionary grassroots and social movements um, suggests that that this is really the the fundamental tension that needs to be resolved. It's not so much about the official anti-Chavista opposition, and this is this is where a lot of the commentary and a lot of the press uh, focuses. The reality is that that the Chavista bloc will be able to deal with the opposition insofar as it deals in a in a powerful and democratic way with you know these internal tensions. And if uh, if this process enters a period in which the leadership uh, moves it toward the center and moderates its demands and does not continue to fight corruption and and continues to allow sort of bureaucratic Chavista sectors to have their say, what we'll see is an increasing alienation of this radical grassroots, which is really the only defense, both electoral and sort of, uh, you know, and otherwise that the process has. Thank you, George Chigarell Omar of Drexel University, the author of We Created Chavez, A People's History of the Venezuelan Revolution, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. It has been painful to watch President Obama agonize over the appropriate U.S. response to Syria and to other nations of the Middle East. But it is no easy task to balance a complex array of goals and values, advancing democracy, ending humanitarian crises, defending international rules, and protecting U.S. security interests, all while trying to avoid undermining U.S. credibility and his own authority. Not so long ago, U.S. foreign policy decision-making was much simpler. For one thing, it was far less troubled by principle. The Nixon administration had no scruples about massively intervening in Democratic Chile's 1970 election to defeat Marxist candidate Salvador Allende. Washington financed President Allende's opponents and media smear campaigns, openly bought congressional votes when the election ended up in the legislature, and did all it could to provoke the military's involvement. Once Allende took power, President Nixon gave an order to make the Chilean economy scream. At the same time that the U.S. government cut off almost all aid to Chile and energetically discouraged private and multilateral investment, Washington was generously supporting the activities, legal and illegal, of opposing often shadowy political forces. Washington's role in the actual coup in 1973 is still murky. But U.S. intelligence services had a strong presence in Chile. They were not there to mediate a peaceful resolution of the country's bitter strife. In the days and weeks following the coup, U.S. officials were well aware of the brutal tortures, murders, and disappearances orchestrated by the new regime and fully informed of the killing of two jailed Americans. Secretary of State Kissinger derisively silenced the U.S. ambassador who expressed concern about the military junta's cruelty. He ordered him to stop the lessons in political science. Washington was indifferent to the fact that the Allende government was a democracy. No, it was not a perfect 
or even near perfect democracy. But it was surely among the most open and law-abiding countries in Latin America. It was a dozen years later, with President Reagan in the White House, that the United States recognized the hypocrisy of claiming to wage war in Central America in order to promote democracy, while at the same time ignoring General Pinochet's continuing brutal repression. And thankfully, started to support a transition to civilian rule in Chile. From Nixon to Obama, the U.S., along with Chile, has made some progress in the past 40 years. Peter Hickam's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to his Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, you may contact us, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicAQ. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>